Hello and welcome to Dissecting a Frog, a podcast about writing, performing and producing comedy. It's hosted by me, Luke Morris. This week we talked to John Brooks. Uh, this is a live recording in Adelaide and it's very, very good. I, I, <laughs> I'm not just trying to make you listen to it. Uh, you already are. You, you, you've downloaded or pressed play on this. So thank you. Um, I'll tell you why it's very good, very interesting in a moment. Um, I do want to give a quick plug to the Comedy Victoria website first because Bendigo Comedy Festival, which I help produce, uh, we're coming back this year. We're, we've, this will be our fifth or sixth festival. I can't remember. I think it's our fifth. We have an expression of interest form this year. It's kind of quiet. We're just inviting people we want to turn up in a way. And that includes you, dear listener. And how do you fill out the expression of interest form and get paid to come to Bendigo and do your show? Well, what you do is you join Comedy Victoria. Comedyvictoria.com.au It's in the newsletter that I sent out for Comedy Victoria just yesterday. Um, and it will be in again uh, next month when just before registrations close. So do that and come to Bendigo if you can. Um, that'd be great. But let's talk about the interview. So why is the interview so good? John Brooks, as I start and explain to the audience, he's an award-winning comedy writer. He released a solo show onto YouTube. He's suffers sleep apnea. He's a headliner at the Rhino Room and he runs his own hot sauce company. Um, and a hot sauce company being that he sells hot sauce on the side. You know, from all of those side projects, hot sauce is his other side project. I'm talking a lot about hot sauce. He writes for international comedians and it was a crazy thing to talk about how he goes about doing that process. Uh, and talking about Adelaide, because he's from Adelaide, how comedy works and grows in Adelaide. For those of you really interested in comedy, Adelaide Fringe is a major event. And John's been part of Adelaide Fringe for a few years and just gigging in Adelaide. And he's got an interesting view on whether or not it's good or bad. So we talk about that as well. We talk about Melbourne comedy talking about traveling for comedy we talk about a lot of things the audio is a little bit scratchy like it was last episode with anna because it was recorded live uh it's still very good i know it's scratchy don't message me that it's a little bit scratchy that's just how this audio came out but it's well worth a listen so let's dissect the frog of comedy writing in adelaide with john books Hey, thanks for having me, man. How much of that introduction do you like, hate, or agree with, or disagree with? <laughs> I'd say rather than owner and producer of a solo show, I'm owner and producer of a hot sauce company, <laughs> and I'm a victim of comedy. So that's pretty much what I, I'm a lifelong victim of stand-up. You, you're lo- but you've got a show that's on YouTube. Yes, so Starving Artist, I called it. Uh, how did that go for you? I mean, ha- that's an interesting thing to just produce from day one, make a solo show, and I gather that that was always intended to aim for that YouTube market. Yeah, 
All right. How, how deep do you want me to go into my mania here? Oh, <laughs> um, mania, as long as it's related to comedy, as yeah, far yeah. as the rabbit hole goes. Okay. So I've been doing stand-up for 15-odd years. Yeah. On and off, I, I took some breaks between about 2011 to roughly 2011 to about 2017, 2018. Yeah. But I've been going since 2008. And in that time, I have never uploaded any stand-up to the internet. Yeah. Ever. So, and, you know, I kind of was going, why is no one coming to my shows, you know? Like, whenever I do a gig, they go really well. People come up and ask me when I'm playing. And I just realised it was because I had nothing on the internet. Now, I'm the kind of moron that rather than going, you've got 15 years' worth of stand-up to pick from, what you should do is write a whole bunch of current topical material, record it, and put it on the internet in the hope that it will be topical and current leading into the festival season. People will see that I'm a topical current comic to go and see yeah and then it'll pay off that way no one in australia's watched it oh really <laughs> no no like 90 98 percent of the views are in the u.s oh which is bizarre just simply because they're such a bigger market okay i think okay uh, yeah yeah so the, the weird thing being i did a whole bunch of australian jokes for australian audiences and it's not resonated here but it's picked up so it's got about five thousand views now and they're all from people in the states. I've seen this. I've seen the solo show. I've seen. I've also seen that the, um, the there's the Kanye West breakout. Yeah. Have you broken out the other bits as well? Yeah. So I broke out about seven or eight different bits. Okay. Uh, that and, and it was all just to try and drum up an audience for the Adelaide Fringe Festival. So I broke out a bit about um, you know the, the absurdity of transgender women being an election issue in Australia. Yeah. Yeah. It's being driven That's by people who have no it. skin in the, the game yeah. really. They yeah. You know, they're just trying to. You know, manipulate it for their own for their own ends, really. Uh, so I did a bit about that. I did a bit about dad jokes because I like playing with kind of comedy, uh, I suppose, form. Yep. I like having a bit of a muck around with that. So I, I do a bit about dad jokes, which is really just a socialist rant that I that I go into. You know, that dad, I'm hungry. Well, the reason we're hungry is because we live in a capitalist society. <laughs> you know, I basically go into a rant like that, and that was always kind of like a show closer for me. Yep. So I always used to use that, and I figured, well, if I get all these jokes that I love out there on the internet, it'll force me to go and write more, and people will see a completely new show. So I've, I've completely built a rod for my own back by burning all this great material. Hang on a second. You said you, you wrote a sh- I thought you said you, you've been doing stand-up for 15 years. Yeah. You wrote a show to do... Specifically, specifically for the internet. And then as soon as you did that, you realised that I, I can't use all those jokes and now I've got to write a whole new show. Now I've got to write a whole new show. It's the dumbest thing I've ever done. Yeah, when you said mania, I didn't think I was going to get real mania. Yeah, no, Because that is terrible. Everybody... Because the, the notion is for, for people on TV is that they tend to... Uh, like, they only do their, their TV jokes, like, when it's at the end and they don't want to keep doing them because they need to keep using them. Yeah. But you've, you, you've, 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 you've not done that. No. No, <laughs> I've, I've literally taken the family jewels, put them on the front lawn, started a fire in the hope that people would look. <laughs> and, and basically, I've just, I've just made life incredibly hard for myself. So I've released that over Christmas. And here's the fun part. Yeah. So um, we've had a very mild... Because you're, you're, you're Victorian? Yes. Yeah, so I believe you come over here a little bit. You spend a bit of time in Adelaide. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But we've had a very mild summer. Yeah. And me, like, I mean, I grew up in the desert. I grew up in places like Port Pirie and Port Augusta. Very hot places, but I hate it. I never liked the heat. Yep. Um, 
So we've had a very mild summer, which is great for me. What a horrible place to grow up when you hate the environment you grow Anyway, sorry. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Um, so very mild summer. So I'm acclimatised to a summer that's 22 degrees, overcast, zero humidity, just beautiful. Yeah. The day we record this show, it's 45 degrees and it's under hot, like old school stage lights, not the new LED ones that the kids are used to. I'm talking the old Muppet Theatre, you know, high beam... You know, like just They're basically lasers at you. Yeah, rotisserie chicken stuff, basically. <laughs> so I'm under those things for an hour and a bit. Yeah. It's boiling hot, and the Rhino Room, which is a fantastic venue, those air conditioners haven't been on all year. Yeah. So they're struggling. So at one point, I think it was about fifty something degrees on stage. Oh. And I got heat stroke. Yes. While I was recording the show. So I walk off stage. I'm drinking water, and like I'm just not, I can't stop sweating. My heart's racing. I'm like going, oh, this isn't good. Of course, I'm smart, so I drive myself home. <laughs> yeah, just, just genius level stuff here. Uh, of course, got myself a nice sugary drink from McDonald's on the yeah. way home to deal with that, which apparently is the worst thing you can do oh, right. during heat stroke because it produces more insulin and then your body just goes, ah, and freaks out. So that happens. And then I get COVID from it. So it was one of the first nights that the whole place had opened up again. Yeah, just incredible. So I got heat stroke, COVID. And then I had to edit the show together. The beautiful part about this is because it's a self-produced show. My budget is zero dollars. I've got two friends, like manning cameras for me, and another mate who's a professional cinematographer. Yeah. So he's he's basically doing me a favour by working for a hundred bucks. Yeah. And I've got my other two friends using my cameras that I've got. So they're doing a good job with that. My little sound recorder, much like the one that you're recording this podcast on, three minutes into the special special, I say with air quotes, yeah. my YouTube show. The preamp in my recorder goes, so my sound quality is now suddenly very and it's just completely stuffed. So I've had to then take this is this is for the audio geeks out there. I've had to take room sound off tiny little camera mics that doesn't work. So the whole thing is just shot to bits. The lighting has messed with the cameras. So like if you look at it now on YouTube, it's black and white. It looks like all artistic choices. It's not. I, I, I wondered about that. Yeah, no, it's not. It's all. It's not artistic choice. It's the fact that the cameras weren't properly calibrated, which was my fault. And then the sound went, and it's like, well, what do I do with this now? So there's a whole chunk of the show that's missing because the audio was completely ruined. Oh, crumbs. So it was supposed to be an hour. It's about 45 minutes. But I've, I've had to cobble this thing together from the ashes, and I've like totally $6 million manned it, but without a budget. It's just sticky tape and dreams and push it out there onto the internet to see if it would work. And the frustrating thing there is that it, it sort of sounds like it has worked, except you're not touring Nebraska. No, I'm not. No. And a big part of why that got picked up in the States is that I do a horror podcast called Gabin in the Woods, which exclusively has a fan base in the United States. Oh, sake. Yeah, I know. So if I ever do one day pluck up the courage slash money to tour, there's a ready-made audience for me in South, <laughs> in South Texas. But... Not here in Australia. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, okay then. So, I, uh, you did it to try and sell shows in Adelaide. Yeah. How did, can I ask, how did Adelaide go? Adelaide was really good for me this year, specifically because I don't think that recording had anything to do with it. I think it was to do with the fact that I was much more present on the scene this time around. Okay, that, that defeats the purpose of doing the special <laughs> Completely, no, 100%. <laughs> I'm sorry to highlight it, 100%, that. 100%, yeah. Because I always thought, because 
I've got friends who are going out to lots of gigs and they're, yeah. do, they're going to line-up shows. It's great. And they come back and say, saw this guy, I can't remember his name, he was really good. Yeah. And I, that's why I sort of feel line-up shows are sort of pointless and being present is almost pointless because yeah. people go there, love you, they don't remember to book for the John Book show. No. You, but you think that worked? I think that might have worked specifically because I was helping to co-run an open mic. Yeah. So a lot of the people... Look, honestly, I, I played a 20-seater. Yeah. It's a small room at the back of the Rhino Room called the Alley Cat. I was in there for five days. So a maximum of 100 tickets that I could sell. The run sold out. Yeah, okay. Which is great. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't make any money, but I didn't lose any money, which for yep. me is a big, big difference. I normally walk away with a bit of a loss from the fringe. Um, you know, a lot of it was family and friends, but the beautiful thing was it was people I haven't seen for a very long time. That's nice. Because I've got this real bad habit of trying to be a bit too clever with the names of my shows, right? So I'll give them like these like hyper puns. Like, you know, Will Anderson will have Willosophy and that sort of stuff. And it works for him. Whereas I was like going completely down the other end. I had a show called Shitegeist. And it was like the the poster was just like me in a public toilet. It was bad. It was. I haven't. Okay. I have some itches to scratch now yeah. because that sort of marketing I never understood. I understood that uh, uh, Tom Ballard is it I. Like people know who Tom Ballard is. Yeah. What, it, it goes back to a novel. As soon as your name is the biggest thing in font on the novel, that's when you've made it. Yeah. But uh, uh, I want to say Greg Matthews is a cricketer, but let's pretend nobody has ever heard of the name Greg Matthews. Yeah. Greg Matthews is it I? I don't know who Greg Matthews is. Is it I? I don't care. Why would someone make a show that's so impenetrable? Why would you? Because I'm dumb. <laughs> that's why. <laughs> Because I was too clever by half. So this time I gave it a really simple name. I called it Nobody. And it was about how I've been doing comedy for ages, but no one knows who I am. Oh. And it was a very simple premise. And I didn't, like in the little blurb that you get in the festival guide, I didn't do the whole, oh, it's nominated for this, toured with this, supported that. I just went, 100 tickets, it's on for five days. If you miss out, you miss out. And that was it. And it worked. That is great. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if it's the bare bones honesty of it or just the... And, and it's, it's, it's the, uh, what's it? you miss it, you lose it. The, the, uh... Well, the FOMO. The FOMO, yes. Yeah. That's what I tried to play on. Look, I mean, I don't think I could have sold more than the 100 tickets I did, but it worked in that small venue, which for me was good. Great. Yeah. The problem being I had to write an entirely new hour to do that 100-seater, uh, which I'm... kind of feels like that Wu-Tang record that Mike, like Martin Shkreli bought that like no one's ever going to hear. I kind of feel like I've wasted... Like a year's worth of output for just a, a couple of people. Sorry to the people who can't. No, you can. No, no, no. no. Well, you can. You can use that material because, let's yeah. be honest, a hundred people saw it. Yeah. If you go to another, do any other gig, oh. it's very unlikely this that hundred people have all turned up that same night. Honestly, <laughs> like because it's an hour, and this is the way a lot of comics work. You do an hour during the festivals, and then you basically take that hour and you throw away all the stuff that didn't work. And you've then got a 30 to 40 minute headline set. Yeah. Which is what I've got now. I've now got a tour ready headline set based off that show, and it's rock solid. Uh, I want to ask about that stuff, but I'm, I'm just to step back for a second, because yeah. we talked about this off stage, uh, uh, another bugbear of mine. <laughs> the, the idea of doing that. So you said a 15 seat, 20 seat room, if you can make that work, you can play any venue. Yeah. And 
that seems really strange because, partly because you said, oh, you've got friends in the audience and things like that. And I feel that, you know, I always feel that when you're in a smaller room, you've got much quicker connection to the audience. Yeah. And that's an... Not, it's never easy, but it's easier to make that connection to people than in a 200-seat room. But you were saying that a 200-seat room isn't necessarily easier. Look, I don't think. And there's a couple of reasons for that. Like, especially during a festival, if you're selling a 200-seat room, you've got a name. People know who you are. You've got that already established connection. You know, people, people know, oh, that's a, that's a Justin Hamilton. That's a Will Anderson. Or, or that, not even A, it's Justin Hamilton. It's Will Anderson. Yeah. We know what we're going to get. You've already got that free kick of the connection. Now, if you're doing like a lineup show, like on a Friday night in Melbourne or something like that, yes, the MC might have that initial few minutes of like having to get people on board, getting people to settle down, get off their phones, you know, focus towards the front. They might have that initial problem. But as an act walking onto a stage in a big room, you don't have the problems that you do walking cold into a 15, 20-seater that's boiling hot where yeah, everyone's okay. touching shoulders. You know, you're wondering, like, why have I spent $25 to sit in this cupboard, you know, with, like... <laughs> you know, oh, so people who are booked for the Alicat don't realise that, they're, as you said, they're going into the spare Oh, they've room. got no idea. And this is the beautiful thing because... And I love the Rhino Room. I'm in no way disparaging the Rhino Room. It is... My comedy home. I okay. love it to bits. I love everyone there. But sitting backstage, backstage is literally a section of the room with a shower curtain <laughs> in front of you, like a slightly heavier shower curtain. And you hear people walk in just going, oh, I didn't think it was this small. <laughs> yes. And they go, oh, God, it's hot, isn't it? Where do we put our drinks? Like, and they go, do we sit near the front? I don't want to sit that close to the front. And you can yeah. hear the crowd. Yeah. What, what if you shit? How do we get out? Oh, yeah. No, I've heard that. Yeah. I've heard, and I've had people get up. And leave, and I'm just like, oh, sorry, guys. And they go, yeah, you're not for me. And they walk out, and you're like, Jesus, man, a third of my crowd just left. Yeah. But if you can, if you can work a room so, that small, okay. You honestly, like, you have to be sharp. You have to connect instantly. You've really, you've really got to convince people to come along on the ride very quickly. So you would, you got to win over a room of people locked in a small room with you very quickly. Yeah. As opposed to a 200 seat venue. Yeah. Even if 10 of them don't care, there's at least 190 others who... And there's that thing about being in a large crowd where people lose their inhibitions and they laugh. Yeah. Because there were times where I was doing my show during the festival and I'd hear silence and I'd be like, mm, this isn't going so well. And, of course, you, you know this feeling that the, the lights are so bright you can't actually see the crowd. So I did the old, you know, sun visor over the eyes and had a look. And people are there with big smiles, yeah. like silently laughing, like doubled over. Yeah. You're just like, oh, if this was a room where they, they didn't feel self-conscious, this would be very loud. Yeah. This would be good. And you also, the, the thing, I mean, I think about that kind of stuff is that in a 200-seat room, mm. if you had 50% of them who smile or laugh a little bit, yeah. that's still 100 people creating a volume. Yeah. Which creates volume for everybody else to feel yeah. relaxed. And Absolutely. Whereas, and look, yeah. yeah, and I'm not saying the people who play those rooms don't know how to play small rooms because they've all come up yeah. through that. They've all had to win their way up the ladder to get to that. I'm just saying that once you get to that point, it's a little bit easier. And, like, I've seen this with, like, some big touring comics who came over. Um, I supported a very, very big name about 10 years ago in Adelaide's Theberton Theatre, which is our iconic community theatre, holds 1,700 people. Um, you know, it, it's, if you get to play the Febby, you've made it, basically. It's, it's, it's our Athenaeum. Okay. Uh, it's, it's, it's the musical equivalent of the tote. 
Like, if you ever got to play there, you've really, really made it. And I went out there and I did really well. People weren't expecting an, an opening act. Um, this person was famous from a very big TV show in the States. Yep. They, weren't known for, they weren't known for stand-up. And I got out there, did really well, came off stage, and then went mingled with people because I didn't even have backstage access. Oh, that's how low down the chain I was. <laughs> but they saw me in the bar and they're just like, oh, can I buy you a drink? I was like, yeah, I'm not even being paid. Let's do this. Like, this would be good. The person who they were there to see came out and they got laughs and there was enough to carry them over. But a lot of people were kind of like, oh, this is very different. Like, this person hasn't kind of paid their dues. Now, this person is now very good and they've paid their dues and they now know how to dominate a big room and a small room. But they could, they could never have got that show to work in a small venue they had to book it in something because, I mean, number one, because they can make the money from it and they can afford to do that. But without the name, they would have absolutely sunk. Is there a bit of that it's just being match hardened, though? Yeah, a bit of it. So, absolutely. You know, if somebody's been off stage for a while getting back, you know, you, you might still have the name to, to play a 500-plus room, but then, gosh, you haven't done the small rooms in so long. It's, it's, yeah. it's hard. It'd be, and this is the thing, like, you know, a lot of the biggest names in Australia, like, you could take a Rove McManus and drop them in a 20-seater and he would destroy it. He would absolutely dominate. Tom Gleeson would absolutely dominate a room because they've never forgotten the skills they had yeah. coming up through that. Like, you Do see you think it, they're the same skills? Are they the same skills? I think so, yeah. Like, I mean, especially, especially when Rove and Tom and those, that kind of scene, like Rove, Tom, Corinne Grant, those guys, when they came up through, there was no TV supporting them. They literally created the TV industry yeah. that supported them. Melbourne Comedy Festival, back when they were starting out, was still dominated by, like, you know, Anthony Aykroyd and Max Gillies and, yeah. you know, the people who were still linked to Fast Forward and, and that kind of stuff and probably some of the bigger names out of the States and, the, and the, the Edinburgh Festival. So they all started ground level just like we did. Absolutely. Let's go back to yeah. writing. So you wrote... Um, your own show. Yeah. Then you wrote another show. <laughs> no, no, I wrote... Okay, so normally, like, my process for writing a festival show would be I would finish the Adelaide Fringe. I normally can't afford to take the risk of going to the Melbourne Comedy Festival, so I'll just leave that. Yeah. And then I'll do gigs around South Australia, basically. I, I used to travel to Melbourne quite a bit. I used to go to Perth and around. But for me, as a dad and a whole bunch of stuff, it just kind of limited what I did. So my writing process became... Finished the Adelaide Fringe, kind of put that stuff aside, started writing new stuff. So the idea was write a new five minutes every month. So you know, 12 months comes around, you've got an hour, basically. So it was, if you space it out over a year, it's just like saving up. It's very easy. Now, go on. Yeah, but you didn't do that this I time. I didn't do that. I did something extraordinarily dumb this year. So I've written... I'd been doing that up until about August, and I really needed money because comedians don't earn much, and I got offered from someone to write their festival show for them. So I did that. How does that... So that's a... That, I mean, you told me that earlier. It's really I, common. That's really common. It's so really common. I'm, I respect... You probably don't want to name names on that, but yeah. if, there, if, if someone's a... Uh, let's imagine they're a professional comedian. Yeah. Can, can we... Can, is that too far removed from the reality, or is that... No, look, uh, you know, the majority of like, you know, like a, a Tom Gleason, a Judith Lucy, people like that, they write all their own material. Yeah. There are people who maybe dabble in a bit of comedy. They very much have writers. There so are... The, the actors versus the 
the writers. Yeah. So uh, there are some people that will bring on someone to help out with their shows yeah. because they've got a lot of media commitments, that kind of yeah. stuff. They'll be doing radio, they'll be doing TV. Realistically, it's very hard to get out and work the open mic scene and develop up a new show yep. when you can have a bunch of premises and just hand them over to someone and get them to write a bunch of stuff. So I actually did this for two people last year. One of them, a touring comic in the States, who was like, I really need this material fixed, handed it over to me. I sent them 35 minutes of material back a week later. I then had this person approach me and say, I run a full-time business and I can't spare the time and I really need a quality show to take on tour. They gave me their first draft of what they had. I then went away and basically copy-edited it and fixed it, restructured it, space of two, three weeks, wrote them a show. Handed, handed back a turnkey, ready-to-go show. I then wrote my own show and then another show. So basically in the space of last year, I wrote four hours of comedy that ended up on stages around South Australia. That's crazy. It's dumb. It's no, so dumb. It's not... Well, I imagine many people listening to this are probably thinking that's the dream. Yeah, but... I but you're telling me <laughs> the dream is dumb. Well, no, number one, I didn't earn very much money from it. So Why? Why didn't you charge more? Well, I should have, uh, especially one of them, I should have charged a lot more. Uh, but look, basically, like it's a contract fee. My, one of my friends reached out and said, I need a show written. What can you do for me for 2000 bucks?" And I said, well, that'll get you five days and I'll just write and edit for five days and then what I hand back is what you get yeah. because that's not a lot of money for a writer or an editor. No. Um, so that's what I did and they gave me you know, some notes and I handed them a show at the end of the week. So when they give you notes, they, they, you said they're giving you present premises. These yeah. are things that I assume are connected to their identity or their character or Usually, something. Yeah. So that when they come on stage, it's, it's still related to them. It's, it's delivered not, as them from their persona and their experiences. Do you, do, the, do, you, do you have to watch their stand-up or know enough yeah, about them to write the, in that? These two people were people I'm very familiar with. Okay, so yes. they trusted you yeah. with doing that kind yeah. of stuff. They didn't pull me off the internet. They know me from the scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. my, my trainings as a writer, I'm a, I'm a journalist by trade uh, and I spent many years working in politics as a PR flack and speechwriter. So I'm used to turning out copy really quickly. Yeah. That's what I'm trained in. Uh, yeah. How do you do, – do you, do you proof any of that on stages? Like when you're saying that you, you write an hour, but to, in my mind, to, to make a good show, yeah. you need to not only write that – hour you probably write two hours almost and then find out while you're on stage ah oh, that bit isn't working as well as that bit if i and that's that's my mental process is practicing on in front of people and using mm. the audience as an editor yeah and then going okay right so that's how that works but that's, you've got a week or two so yeah i mean that's the thing with delivering stuff for other people you've just got to deliver it fast and sometimes you know you, you actually just raid notes you had for your own stuff which is something I've done for people. Like, I've like, nah, I've been sitting on that joke for four years. I'm not going to use it. It'll, I can shoehorn it in here. You know, it's... Uh, but it, how do you trust it's going to be good? Look, a lot of the, this is the difference. A lot of comedians, like you say, will basically write on stage. Yeah. They'll get out there with some premises. They'll play around with it. They see how audiences go. I've never done that. For me, it's always been I'm taking a ready-to-go bit that I've sat there and I've ruminated on for days and I've played with the wording and I've rearranged things. Because the way I basically do it is I'll write stuff out and then this is something that I learned and I hate to admit it, but because referencing this douchebag always puts you in a basket with certain people. But 
Hunter S. Thompson, when he decided to learn how to write, he transcribed The Great Gatsby because he wanted to, he wanted to feel how it was to write that, uh, to learn okay. the metre and, you know, he, he basically wanted to experience that as the writer. So he wrote out The Great Gatsby. Yeah. And what I figured out was, well, if you did that with your favourite stand-up, so uh, the comedian that I did this with is a guy called Glenn Wool, based yeah. out of the UK. He had a great show about 2007 when I was starting and there's a clip where he was on Michael McIntyre's Apollo. And I took that clip and I transcribed it word for word and then I highlighted, like just in bold, everything that caused the laugh, whether it was just a facial expression or a punchline or anything like that. And when you see it like that, you can literally see the gaps between the laughs and you can see how a set is structured. It's like beautiful mind stuff where you're like, you know, the maths is coming at you from space. So I now do that with everything I do. I write it down. And then I think, well, that's where it's going to get the laugh. That's where this might happen. And I'll make a note, like, do this gesture. Do this, do that. And I will look at it and I'll see the gaps between the laughs and I'll shrink it. I'll edit down between them to the point where I know that will work. I know that will work. This stuff, maybe it won't. And I'll get up on stage and I'll do a five-minute bit. And I won't tweak it. I'll, I'll do it as I've written it. And then at the end of it, I'll go, I'll go back and look at my notes and just go, yeah, maybe that one word didn't work. And I'll strike that one word out. And that's pretty much all I'll do. Struth. So I don't, I don't write on stage. I bring very much a completed set. But that's very heavy. There's a diligence. There's a... Um... Yeah, I told you I'm crazy. Oh, but I, just, I don't think that's crazy. I love that idea. I just imagine so many people will be listening to that just thinking there's a dedication within, as you said... You wrote out and then highlighted and looked at the metering, the metering and the pacing, yeah. and then just went right. There's a template. I'm going to apply that to everything I do. Everything else. Yeah. And you can actually take those highlights, like you know, like do you remember that scene from the X Files where there? It's, I think it's X Files season one, about episode five, where they're printing out all this um, binary code. Yeah, and they yeah. lay it out on the ground and then they go up on the stairs and they can see that it's the face yes. of Beethoven or something like yeah, that. Yeah. That's, you can do that. So I take my show and if I print out... Because this is the thing. An hour of comedy, it's 12 pages. That's all it is. An hour of comedy is 12 pages. And I got that from my speech writing days. Five minutes per page. Okay, good. Because I was just thinking... As film, film is like a minute a page or something like yeah, that. Yeah, something like that. But, but this is, this is Arial, Arial 12 point, 1.5 spaced... With a with a carriage return between paragraphs. So this is, that's weird because I use I use Notepad. Yeah. And as soon as it, as soon as the thing goes off the page, if I ha- and you have to have a joke on the second line. Yeah. Like I, I space it in that almost. That's too many words. Yeah. To not have a joke. But this is the thing: if you take those twelve pages and you lay them out sequentially, so three by three by three. Yeah. And you know, with oh, so sorry, four by four. Yeah. You can actually see. You know, like the dramatic arc, you can see where I'm establishing things, where it peaks, and then you kind of want to have it lull at about the 45-minute mark where you... You know, it's very much a festival comedy style where you have that kind of emotional gut punch at about the 45-minute mark yeah. and then bring it back. You know, the, the standard dramatic arc. People's, yeah, that's the standard dramatic I've heard people complain about that being like, yeah. oh, you're trying to win a festival prize by having a dramatic arc in it. Yeah. So, or you're just trying to tell a narrative story based on 5,000 years of, <laughs> of accepted wisdom about how to tell a story, yeah. Exactly, yeah. The, the ancient Greeks had this down. I'm not messing with that formula. Oh. You, know? you know? 
So you can actually see it happening. You can see the jokes compressing at the start, getting a bit of air. About the 45-minute mark, there's a lot of talk. You know, because that's the thing. Like, you can have an onslaught of comedy that goes for an hour, and it works. Like, you can just bam, 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 just pummel people. But I've always found that if you give them a few minutes to, like, you know, really kind of connect with them at about the 40-minute mark, you can then go into some really absurd territory. Yeah. Like, with a really absurd punchline. So the show I've just done, the whole thing basically hints, and I know it's all passe to talk about the pandemic and that kind of stuff, but I basically talk about the connection that my girlfriend and I made. Like, we started dating at the very start of the pandemic and the things we learned about each other. Yeah. And it was, it was really quite absurd and, and just fun at the start. Like, I found out that she didn't have any pop culture references because she grew up on a farm, didn't have a TV. She'd never seen The Muppets or The Simpsons. So, like, everything I was saying to her sounded crazy. Because I do nothing. But, <laughs> yeah, I do nothing but quote the Simpsons and the Muppets. Yeah. So if you say Cowabunga, dude, she's yeah. like, or, you why? Know, I, I literally did the Swedish Chef in our kitchen one day, <laughs> and she had no idea. She had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> so I talk about that at the start, and that's that's the sweet and innocent bit. And then joke, 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 joke. You just pound people with jokes. About the forty-five minute mark, I then go into the story where I found out that our families are actually linked by this horrendous hate crime that happened in the outback in the 1800s. It's a true story. Yeah. Um, I won't go into it now because I don't want to spoil yet another hour of comedy. But I found out, like we, speaking about our shared family histories, we found out that our two families were linked as one side as perpetrator and victims of this horrendous hate crime that oh, happened, wow. happened in the 1880s in rural South Australia. Oh, right. Yeah. There's a, there's a funny release at the end of it. But it's, yeah, I think that's the only way you can do it is to actually give people a bit of space to breathe and accept that you're taking them into this quite, you know, the, I'm not trying to be Dave Chappelle. I'm not trying to, you know, offend people. It's, a, <laughs> you know. Good, because yeah. trying to be Dave Chappelle, people can take in different ways. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm too old for that nonsense. So, oh, so, yeah, the only way to get people on board for that is to drop the jokes and to kind of go, right, Here's a horrendous story, but if you come along with me, it's going to uh, pay off. No, thank you, because I, yeah, I had a show once with some... I, there was pathos in it. And somebody said, you've got to cut out the bit that's not funny. Oh. And then I just cycled through all the, all the routines. And I said, oh, no, that was okay, that was okay, that was yeah. okay. And then I knew the bit. I was just... Oh, so you can't remember? And they were like, oh, no. I was like, I'm not taking out the, the heart. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, there's, there's some people that will give you advice no matter how out of touch and wrong they are. It's amazing the number of people that cut their teeth in theatre restaurant that haven't graduated beyond that who will come up to me after a show and go, you know it would be funny if you pulled this face at the end of that? Or, you know, you went and made a chicken noise. Like, I'm not fucking doing that. <laughs> There's a reason you're still in a Faulty Towers tribute show. Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> Can I ask uh, uh, about what kind of material you write then? I, this is actually something I wrote down here. Yeah. Here's, a, here's a question that I couldn't... It's long. Do you feel that when you take a risk in telling a, a joke that you ever get worried that the audience is going to carry on with what you're thinking? Because this was the, the um, experience for, for the stand-up. They're uh, referring to Kanye West, talking to your heavy metal friends, yeah. that you love this, and then there's all this... And then watching that, and it's getting laughs, and that's great. But then I'm watching it, and I'm also thinking, you could be saying that, but also it's a personal thing that the audience might not connect with at all. Yeah. So how do you get on stage saying something that... I, I could read that, and I must think, 
Is that funny? Like, I think it's funny. I think there's jokes in there, but how do, how do I have the confidence that that's going to fly? That's the thing about writing a complete set and bringing it to your stage. So that bit about Kanye West that I wrote about... So everyone was jumping on board that, of yeah. course. I wanted to point out the fact that a lot of my heavy metal friends were very excited about the reunion of Pantera, <laughs> which if you remember that band... A lot of, lot of um, you know, a lot of uh, Confederate flags and all that kind of stuff. I'm like saying, well, you can't rightly criticise Kanye for the stuff he's saying and still plan to go to the Pantera reunion when the lead singer is literally sea-cailing on stage and calling for white power. Like, you can't make that distinction between the two. That's right. Yeah, so... And that's, that's, that's me sitting down and going, right... So, like, when you, the, the question being, like, how do I write the material? Like, why do I write it? Well, no, it's, 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 it's sort of related to having the confidence, uh, the, the risk of saying something like that and then not knowing whether people are going to be on board or just... Well, I, I assume they're going to be on board with making fun of Pantera and Zig Hailing. Yeah. But the, 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 the idea of, of, of writing something that you've got a personal opinion about yeah. and then knowing that the rest of the audience is hopefully going to agree with you because that's where it's if I it's personal it can be funny but you don't know that they're going to be on your side always. yeah see i think a lot of the fun of comedy comes in having that risk yeah i think it i think and this is the this is why i spend so much time writing what i do before i take it to stage because every second dipshit has got some you know some edgy take on you know the, the gender equality and trans politics and all this kind of stuff, and for me, I'm sitting back as like a 45 year old with nothing to lose, just looking at this, just going, okay, this is what I really think. Like because, you know, like have you have you seen Chris Rock's new special? Uh, no, not not all of it. No. Man, it's so disappointing. Oh really? It really is. I love Chris Rock so much. I, I really do. Like he has got some of the best stuff ever, and I'm watching him, and I'm just going. This is a guy, he's not hungry anymore. He's been fed. You know, he's got the millions of dollars. He's got the success. He'll arguably be the most successful stand-up, you know, besides like Kevin Hart of yeah. all time. Like he's just massive. And he's out there with this confected outrage building up to a very lame clapback about the slap, you know. And he's got, like, he's got these old, rich, I hate to say it, he's got old, rich white man takes on gender politics and all this kind of stuff. It was just really, really sad. And it felt to me like there was no real risk in what he was doing. Well, I, I, the bits I saw of it, I, it's, I, yeah. I suddenly was thinking, he's taken almost a year to get to this. Yeah. So he's, he's either sat on it and rewritten it and he's, yeah. it's, it's, all, it's all been washed out yeah. in a way. See, I, I think the risk comes in criticising other comics which is a lot of what I was kind of doing in that. In like that, especially that first half of that show that I'm doing, um, the Starving Artist show on YouTube, a lot of it is getting stuck into the toxic masculinity of stand-up. Yeah. And I'm talking about some oh. of the stuff that I've, I've witnessed and been involved in. Yeah. Because it's very easy to paint yourself as someone who's edgy and an outsider by taking the same takes as someone like Dave Chappelle or, you know, like a, you know, an Isaac Butterfield or someone like that. Huh. You're actually not. You're actually boring and mainstream yeah. by going along with that, you know, that... It's a very tired mainstream thought. So It's, it's a very safe... It's, it's, it's edgy, very, it's, very safe edgy. It's very safe edgy. It's swimming with um, reef sharks, you know? <laughs> you know, oh, you look very brave. But they only eat small fish. <laughs> you know, those teeth aren't actually designed to tear flesh. Yeah. You know, like you're not actually taking any kind of real risk. 
Now, that's not to say that I do it specifically for the risk. Like, that was literally me sitting there and watching what was going on with World Stand-Up and going, OK, well, maybe I've got something to say about that. But these days, I'm much less angry. Like, I'm actually much more happy to talk about just stuff that's going on. So I've become much more observational. I was very much in the early days a political comic who was like, this is an issue, I'm going to solve it on stage in front of people. And this is the thing. But you're young, so you think that you can solve everything. Yeah, and here's the thing as well. When I was doing that, like I you know, was coming across as, as quite progressive, finger waggle, quite progressive because I was talking about the hypocrisy of Australia's stance on you know, gay marriage and refugees and all this kind of stuff. When I was doing that in the late 2000s, like 2008, these people from those communities weren't out there doing it and speaking for themselves. So I was kind of, you know, a self-appointed arbiter of it all. But now, flash forward to, you know, even from about 2015 onward, that's when marginalised communities started being represented on stand-up stages. And now for me to get up there and talk about this stuff looks quite old hat and hackneyed because they're speaking for themselves. They don't need me, you know. There's there's tonnes of trans comedians now. Every, Every second comedian comes from one part of the queer or... Right, like you know the the the, the spectrum. Bennett, yeah, yeah. So they're all speaking for themselves now, and for me to get up there and buy into that, I I really look like I'm meddling in territory that's not mine. <laughs> so I'm, I'm happy to step back. Well, we just had Anna on uh, a couple of days ago. Anna Piper Scott. No, uh, Anna Beres from Germany. When we talked, oh, yeah. to, we talked about um, uh, in a similar way. You've got to have skin in the game for it to really. Yeah. And. For me, in a way, I, 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 I thought about it just, just before. I was, I was thinking about something in my head and I was thinking, why can I talk about this? Okay, I was very marginalised as a kid. I feel, felt very excluded. I was bullied a lot. I was isolated. Yep. Okay, I can identify with those communities and therefore I feel like I can sort of get where they're coming from. Yeah. But even then, I am aware that I, I'm not in that community. So it's still a hard thing to yeah. jump into. Yeah, well, if you're familiar with Rudy Lee Tarua, the, yeah. he's very much in that territory because, you know, on the surface he looks like just the ultimate stand-up because he's this big, scary, bikey-looking dude. He's Maori, covered in tattoos, but he's also gay. Yeah. And so, like, you, you know, for, like, you know, mainstream promoters and mainstream comedy audiences and stuff like that, he seems like, oh, he, he's the guy who can speak to all those things. He's finding himself marginalised within those communities. He can't find his people. And oh, it, it's that very interesting. Yeah, it does suck. But also at the same time... Because he looks like someone who wouldn't fit in the gay community, but no. which is, is a shame. But yeah, yeah looks no. like someone who wouldn't fit in the gay but then... So can't play to that. Ah. Yeah, because you know he's he's not a he's not a twink. He doesn't say yes, queen, that kind of <laughs> stuff. You know, but he's he's like he looks like he could kill you, and he could. Like he he comes from a serious Port Adelaide background. Yeah. You know, like the, I, I saw one of his first ever open mics, and it's one of the scaredest I've ever been, because this he gets up on stage and he just he's a whirlwind, and no one can get the microphone away from him because he was very young and very angry and terrifying. Yeah. Was, he, was he funny? Oh, parts, yeah, but like he was also dealing with the very fresh death of his father. Okay. And he talks about his relationship with his father quite a bit in his stand-up. It was a very abusive relationship. So he's on stage dealing with that in real time. And he's also seven foot, a former kickboxer, and, you know, just insane. <laughs> um, so watching him grow over all those years has just been amazing. 
Okay, I'm, I'm glad you said that because I have a segue. We're sort of running up out of yeah. time. Yeah. So segue then, growing, Adelaide Fringe. Yeah. My question to you about Adelaide Fringe is, is it a good thing? For audiences, without doubt, the Adelaide Fringe is a great thing. For, and, and obviously this is for the people of Adelaide. Yeah. How is it for the arts community of Adelaide? Look, in, in many ways for the arts community, it's great. Because especially new comedians, like people doing maybe their first festival show, their first full hour, it gives them a chance to get out in front of an audience as part of an international okay. event that's got huge buzz. Uh, you know, some people are doing very well. They're playing in front of 60 people a night. Um, look, Gives them something to write yeah, towards. Gives them, yeah, a target. Absolutely. The problem that I've got with the Adelaide Fringe is that it's it's basically conditioned the people of Adelaide to binge. Yeah. So you go to see comedy during the Fringe. Yeah. When the when the circus leaves town, the audiences go with them. Yeah. And so you're then left basically with tumbleweeds for another nine months while you wait for everything to kind of come back. That's the problem I've got with the Fringe. It's we're a victim of our own success. It's too successful. That's the that's that's what I was worried about because yeah. I just thought it. Uh, and I hear audiences are bankrupt at the end of Fringe. And I love Fringe. And it's yeah. great they're coming out. That's great. Oh, it's and amazing. giving people an opportunity to do stuff, great. Yeah. But then next month, yeah. we're not going to be... Little Bang have been very, very supportive. But we're not going to be back here because there's not a reason Yeah, to yeah. Look, Adelaide's a very unique beast. Like Melbourne, Melbourne, like during the comedy festival, I'm sure you get much of the same thing. Like, you know, everyone goes out and binges. They go and see 10, 15 different shows. And they might not be going upstairs to, like, Kaz Retops or Rubber Chicken or all those kind of places. But the difference between Adelaide and Melbourne is that Melbourne is one of those five-minute cities where you live in a place like Northcote and you've got a community. Yeah. You've got a community that feeds into the Northcote Social Club. You have the same thing that happens. Out it's, of, it's a population size. It's the population size, but it's also the fact that you've got good public transport, you didn't ever destroy your entire suburbs to just create roads that fed into a CBD and then everyone has a completely disconnected suburbia going through it. Adelaide has that. So we dug up our trams in the 1950s and 60s and we got rid of the regional centres, the regional places. So we now have the CBD, which no one goes out in except for kids who are going to nightclubs. Then you've got that one road in Rundle Street and then the fringe comes along and it all comes to life. Lorenzo's oil style. You know, it's got a <laughs> flicker, there's a heartbeat, rolls over and farts, and then at the end of it, it all just disappears again. Because Adelaide is a very disconnected... It, it's a non-functioning community in many ways. How does the rhino, the rhino room survive? Look through sheer hard work, basically. <sighs> it's, it, they, they bust a gut every week to bring people out. And, you know, we do the same thing with open mic on a Monday. Like, we work out... You know, butts off to get people in and if we get 20 people in on a Monday night that's a real victory Are you still doing open mic and, at Rhino Room? Is that yeah, look I no. mostly do the popcorn because my theory is I've been doing this long enough that I, if I need to get up on stage I can yeah. if young people come along and they want the spot it's theirs and when I say young I mean comedically young it could be someone in their 70s yeah. but if they want that stage time it's theirs I'll only get up when there's not enough people It's scary because Melbourne in, in a way I... There's not many hubs, and there is now, sort of. But the Rhino Room has been around, I don't know how, how long this moved at one point. I yeah, think. the original one got demolished. It's been around since the late 80s in one form or another. That's, a, that's very steady going. It hasn't been a comedy club that whole time. Okay. So the comedy, the comedy side of it was started by 
uh, Charlie Hill Smith, uh, working with people like Pete Monaghan, Limo, Dustin Hamilton, a bunch of other people. So the, the Adelaide comedy that we know has been around since about 2002. That's still pretty good. It's that's, really that's, great. That's it's great. Two decades. Yeah, it's good. All right. I was talking to a friend before. We were yeah. thinking, okay, anyone listen to this? I'm from regional Victoria. I hate gigging in Melbourne because it is very clicky. Yeah. And it really doesn't... I, I've, I've, I talked to them about how I thought about getting back into stand-up and one of my solutions to doing that was putting a bag on my head <laughs> so that no one... Like, it would just cut down part of the, the bull crap. Yeah. Of who is this person we can't tell. Yeah. And I still think about doing that. And then he said, well, a flight to Adelaide's not that expensive. Yeah. Well, how, one thing you will get is stage time. How many people... Do, do, do you get people travelling? We, we used to a lot, a lot more, like maybe around about 2000 and... Probably 2006 to 2013, 14, we used to have a regular stream of Melbourne comics coming over here. But at one point, that reversed because basically the way Adelaide works is we will grow an incredible stand-up and then they'll move. Yeah. And they'll go to Melbourne. Yeah. So you can trace that back to... Like, even Hannah Gadsby got her start here. So, yeah, Hannah Gadsby really... I thought she was Tasmanian. She's Tasmanian, And yeah, then she did really good at war, but yeah, then moved based to from Adelaide. Here. Based from here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So she did that, and uh, Georgie Carroll, um, you know, tons of great comedians in Melbourne, like Ivana Ristigheta, uh, like... Uh, I thought it was New South Wales. Nah, man, he came here. Oh, my God, Adelaide's the epicentre of comedy in Australia. Oh, look, it, it punches above its weight. Melbourne is definitely the epicentre because that's where all the interest is. Melbourne and Sydney, and that's where the clicking well, comes from. Sydney's television, Melbourne's stand-up. Melbourne's stand-up, yeah. yeah. But that's the reason why it's so adversarial and clicky is that you've got, a, you've got everyone vying for that spot. Everyone wants to be signed by A-List or Token or Century Media or anything like that. So it's become cutthroat, you know? How hard is it? How hard is it? Would well, in saying that, I almost, I, I take the approach of, well, why not just be the biggest fish in another pond instead of vying before the the piranhas in the lake? So That's why not why not go to Adelaide? Why not do more gig? What what can the gig people gigging in Adelaide still make it? Or do no. they have to move? No, you have, they to, have move. to move. You have to move. I saw this firsthand. This fringe. If you, I mean, everyone talks about social media and making it on TikTok and yeah, all YouTube, that kind of stuff. Yeah, I've got friends who've got millions of TikTok followers and they haven't sold a single ticket off the back of it. Bullshit. Have not sold a single ticket off the back of it. You still, in Australia, you still, especially in a festival market, you still need to be on TV. Because I sat there at the Rhino Room watching lines snake around the block. And it was, who's this person that's on? And they'd say, oh, it's, you know, here's, here's a perfect example of it. It's Lloyd Langford. Yep. Lloyd Langford's hilarious. Yeah. Brilliant comedian. Yeah. Doesn't tour to Adelaide much. He's only been a couple of times. But everyone's like, I oh, know he's been on Have You Been Paying Attention? And all those shows. Like, you know, he's from TV. You're like, oh, okay. And like, and I, I talk to people like, oh, why are you going to see Lloyd? Have you seen him before? Nah, I loved him on TV. It's like, okay. And like I said, I love Lloyd Langford. He's hilarious. I haven't met him, but I know people who know him, and apparently he's a really nice guy, too. Yeah, that's what I've heard, just, too. Yeah. It's one of those things. Don't, yeah, don't like, be a dick, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, like he was the perfect example. Like, you know, he's someone who's blown up on TV, doing really well, and that's converted to sales. Because... You, okay, so there's an example. Oh, you, just made, you just make me remember Danielle Walker. I used to book her for gigs a lot. 
yeah. and I can't afford her anymore. <laughs> uh, she's lovely, and yep. she she told me she's going to be on the, this podcast at some point. Yeah, but it wasn't until she was on TV yep. that things changed. It didn't matter that she was yeah so good beforehand. Exactly, it was that flip. Yep, and that's the thing. Like if you if anyone wants to go into the publicly available demographic data of people buying Adelaide Fringe tickets. It's men and women over the age of 45 that earn 120 grand a year or more. They're the people who still watch TV. And they're the people who buy the most tickets. Yeah. And they're not on TikTok. They're not on TikTok. In Australia, you still have to be on TV. Last question. Yeah. Of all that, you used to be a journalist. I did. You, you clearly love writing. You clearly love expressing yourself. Yeah. Of all of the, the mediums that you could work in... Yeah. ...or be enthused by this because we don't we, work implies that we make money yeah why comedy <laughs> I have a really really lame origin story like the, la- the lamest right? is, is it worse than Wolverine origins because that oh, was so terrible bad. no this is so bad okay so like I, my first foray into any kind of arts was music so I played drums in a couple of bands and I played in a cover band, which I enjoyed, but it was kind of pointless. And then I started playing in a punk band called the Guantanamo Bay City Rollers. And that was fun because we toured and we built a fan base and I really got a taste for what it's... And to the, even to this day, there is still nothing better than being on a stage, playing at full volume and connecting with a crowd. Like it is... There is nothing like it. Nothing in comedy can really? touch it. Nothing. I always okay. Nothing in comedy. Can I touch thought there that was feeling. always a block between music nah. and the okay. Honestly, like the connection that like, even though you're overpowering them with sound, the energy that comes back from a music audience is so much bigger than comedy. Yeah, but so stand up. I mean, comedy for me kind of came in the early days of blogging. So I was blogging. So this is two thousand and five, two thousand and six, and I was starting to get some response to that. And I was a massive nerd and a friend of mine... Blogging opinions? Blogging, no, like just funny, weird stuff. Okay. Um, you know, stuff that, you know, it was just comedy. I didn't know it was comedy at the time. Um, and look, I will fully own how terrible this is. <laughs> but a friend of mine was dating an international model. And we were in her car driving to her house at Seacliff to play board games. Legitimately to play board games, right? Uh, and I was a nerd... Uh, a total failure in terms of relationships, all that kind of stuff. Uh, really kind of finding my place in the world. Like I grew up in Port Pirie, didn't fit in there, didn't fit in in the metal scene, was kind of finding a small community online in comedy, that kind of stuff. And there's my friend dating a woman who spends most of her time in Milan. And, you know, she's six foot five, statuesque, and to me, nerd Jesus, right? Okay. So the fact that she was even talking to me was just bizarre. How are you, how are you friends with someone... I've just got one of those friends who's just like, they just date interesting people. Okay. You know. Anyway, we're in the car and I'm just talking like I normally would. And she turns around, like she wasn't speaking to me much. She turns around and goes, you should do stand-up. And I did. That's... To to get a girl. Yeah. (laughs) That's literally what it was. Literally what got me up on stage. So I was working on the Kevin 07 election campaign. I was supposed to be working as a media advisor to that. I spent the whole time writing comedy. (laughs) And then a week after the election, I got up for the first time on stage and did stand-up. And the whole meeting women thing disappeared because I then realised, oh, wow, this is really good fun and I really enjoyed it. 
So the, you mean the stress of meeting women or the no, chance to meet women? No, no, no. The, the, the motivation to do it to meet women oh, disappeared. Oh, oh. And I was just like, oh, this is what I've been looking for. This, like the, the music, the blogging, everything has led to this. So I immediately dropped that and I was like, I like this. And it, it's, it's dominated my thinking ever since. That's great to find. That's how I found it, but I'm just really sad that that's how I found it. Because that's lame. <laughs> it's so lame. It's so bad. I'm so ashamed of it, but I own it, you know? Yeah. So speaking of lame things, do you want to tell us the story about Danny McGinlow? No, no. Let's not. Let's thank, let's thank John Brooks for joining. Thank you very much, John. Thanks for having me. And Danny, it was a positive story. <laughs> I love Danny. Thanks, John. <laughs> that was another good episode. Thank you for listening to Dissecting a Frog, presented by Comedy Victoria. To support this podcast and hear about upcoming gigs and opportunities, Become a member, visit the website comedyvictoria.com.au and follow on social media at Comedy Vic. You can track down myself, Luke Morris, at Luke Morris Ha, but please don't take all this comedy talk too seriously because as EB and Catherine Wright wrote, humour can be dissected as a frog can, but the thing dies in the process. <laughs>